0: I want to start tonight by talking about three levels of Akarasatov. The first level of Akarasatov is what I'll call Hakarasatov that impacts the one who's being Makir Tov. Then I want to talk about Hakarasatov where people perhaps have an impure motivation and then finally I want to talk about people if we can have kar satov to people who have not just an impure motivation but a negative motivation okay there's a lot of Midrash chazal on this issue Yaakov Avinu sends Yosef to go check on his brothers. If you look carefully at the psukim, right, that's when Yosef ended up getting sold down to Mitzrayim. If you look carefully at the psukim, it's not exactly what Yaakov Avinu said. What did Yaakov Avinu say? He told Yosef, I want you to go check on your brothers and the sheep. And the sheep. Why does Yaakov Avinu want Yosef atzadik to go check on the sheep. Sir Chaim Shmulevitz says that Yaakov Avinu had a atov to sheep. He had a karas atov to sheep. He made his livelihood off of being a shepherd. In the house of Lavan, Yaakov Avinu became a shepherd. Yaakov Avinu had a atov to sheep. Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabenu was told by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you're going to bring the Makos. Arna Cohen is going to be the one to actually put his staff to hit the water. And then the water will turn to blood. It'll be Arna Cohen that puts his staff in the sand that brings about the lice. Why was it that Moshe Rabbeinu, you know this, why was it that Moshe Rabenu couldn't hit the water? Why was it that Moshe Rabenu couldn't hit the sand? We all know what a Chazal say. Hakarasatov, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Moshe Abenu, could not strike the water because the water saved him when he was a baby. The sand saved him when he buried the Mitzri. So it's clear from Chazal that Chazal saw, so we'll, and we'll, we'll try to develop this concept. It's clear from Chazal that the notion of satov is not a function of. The person who's receiving HaKar Satov. Because in the case of sheep, in the case of water, in the case of dirt, there is no HaKar Satov that can be experienced by an inanimate object. Rather, it's clear from Chazal that a person must be a person. To be an Ever Hashem, a person must be someone who expresses HaKar Satov. And I'll share with you, there's an unbelievable Medrash. The Medrash says that someone who's not Makir Tov, Cannot be mekabel on themselves O oh, malchus shamayim. We have to understand why that is. There's an amazing story. It's a story I grew up with. I don't know if it's a story that you grow up with, so I'll share it with you. Have you girls heard of Rav Gustman? Rav Gustman was one of the world's leading talmidei chachamim. By the time he was 18 years old. He sat on the bezden of Rav Chaim Ozer-Gerzenski. Have you heard of Rav Chaim Ozer? Rav Chaim Ozer was the God Germ in Lithuanian Jewry. And he's to sit on the Besden of Rav Chaim ozer at 18 years old is, you know, Rav Gustman was an unbelievable genius Rav Ghusman used to give shir for many hours He would give shir in kula. He was a tremendous, tremendous Talmachachim He was also a a very sensitive person So the Talmidim used to wonder Why Rav Gussman Who was a world-class Talmachachim And he was a tremendous Masmid They would see that Rav Ghusman had a garden And he would tend to the flowers in his garden It's not exactly what you expect could you imagine going to Rav Chaim Kanievsky in Bene and Rav Chaim, who wakes up at three o'clock in the morning to finish Shas Bavli, Yerushalmi, Shulchan Aruch, Rambam, Tanach every single year? Could you imagine if you came to Rav Chaim and you saw him like watering the roses? Hard to imagine. So finally, one of the Talmidim got up the courage to ask Rav Gusman, "What's uh, what's with the gardening?" So Rav Gusman explained that he ran away from the Nazis. And Ruf Guzman, during the war, he lived with a group of partisans in the forest. you all know what the partisans were? The partisans were people that they hid from the Nazis and they would like, do whatever they could to sabotage the Nazis. And Gusman Guzman was with these partisans in the forest. And Ruf Guzman lived off of the vegetation in the forest. In fact, he told the story that one time Rav gusman was walking in the forest with Rav Chaim Ozer, and they were talking and learning, and out of nowhere, Rav Chaim Ozer started pointing out to Rav gusman this plant can be eaten, but this plant can't be eaten because it's poisonous. This mushroom can be eaten, this mushroom can't be eaten. And Rav Guzman remembers, that he would say, that he remembered wondering, like, why is Rav Chaim going on this tangent and automa- and just, like, randomly talking about what can and cannot be eaten in the forest. And then it came back later, when he was actually in the forest hiding from the Nazis, that that's how he survived. Wow. And Rav Guzman said that he would water the plants every single day, Hakar kar to the plants... Akars to the plants. Again, the notion of akarasatov to an inanimate object. Clearly, the Torah sees it as a prime value. A person should be a person who's Makar Why that is and what's required to get there, we'll discuss. But we have to start off with the basic Kanaka. To be a Makar to be able to recognize the good that something or someone has done for us, is absolutely essential. That's level one. Level two is a little bit more complex. Suppose a person is not trying to hurt us, but suppose a person has motivation that's not necessarily in our best interest, but lamaisa, they do a good thing for us. Do we have to have a karsatov to them? What would be an example of this in the Torah? HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes to Moshe Rabbeinu and he gives him a shlichus. Go to Mitzrayim, get your people free. Except Moshe Rabbeinu does not listen to HaKadosh Baruch Hu right away. What does Moshe Rabbeinu do first? Anybody remember? Again, it's so hard because we don't necessarily you know, read these things inside. We should take the time to read them inside. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu, imagine girls, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu came to us. And he said, go do this. Would you stop off and do anything else first? No, no of course not. And if, if Moshe Rabbeinu does, then it must mean that it was essential. That Moshe Rabbeinu could not fulfill his shlichas to HaKadosh Baruch Hu until he did this thing first. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? And he go, what, what does he do first before he goes to Paro? He goes to his father-in-law Yisro to ask permission. To say, I was told by HaKadosh Baruch Hu that I have to go to Mitzrayim. Why? So the Medrash explains that Moshe Rabbeinu said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of course I'll do your shlichus, but first I need to pay my respect to my father-in-law because he took me in when I had nowhere else to go. Wow. There comes along the Sifse Chaim Rav Chaim Friedlander and he points out as follows What was Yisro's motivation in taking Moshe Rabbeinu in? First of all what had Moshe Rabbeinu just done? He just saved his daughters. So he was in debt to Moshe Rabbeinu. And secondly, Chazal make it clear that why did he want to take in Moshe Rabbeinu? Because he said, I finally found a good son in law. So this was really in Yisro's interest. He was not sitting and thinking, I have an opportunity to bring in a refugee into my home and to open up my house. He had a selfish interest in mind. You know, imagine I had over a guy from Mivasarit. Imagine I had him over for Shabbos. Not because I'm such a Baal but because he was one of the good ones. And I'm thinking to myself, I should build a close kesher with him because I got daughters, you know? <laughs> this is why I don't have boys over so much, you know? Yisro was not coming from this altruistic perspective of let me take in a refugee. He didn't have borders, he wanted a son in law. And yet, says Ruf Chaim Friedlander, Moshe Rabbeinu felt, listen to this, Moshe Rabbeinu felt that he could not have the mission of HaKadosh Baruch Hu be fulfilled through him until he went to Yisra. Wow. What's the pshat? in stark contrast to Moshe Rabbeinu. Who's the foil for Moshe Rabbeinu? You girls remember when you learned literature in high school? Right? Every character has a foil. Remember that? Yeah, i sure show you do. The, um, who's the foil for Moshe Rabbeinu? Who's the opposite personality of Moshe Abeinu in the Torah? Sorry. Paro. And it's interesting. Because who is Paro? Paro embodies the epitome of of being a kafwi tov. Where do we see that? What's the very first thing we see about Paro in the Torah? When it came to the story of Moshe Rabbeinu and Shmos, I mean. He didn't remember Yosef. What does Rashi say? He acted as if Yosef didn't exist. Imagine this. A person comes... He saves your entire kingdom. He saves your entire malucha. Without Yosef HaTzadik, Mitzrayim would have been finished. If the famine had come and they had nothing, the people would have left. Paro's entire malucha came because of Yosef. And then what happened? Not that long afterwards. Who is this Yosef? What have you done for me lately, Jews? And now the Jews are a threat. If Paro embodies being a kafwi tov, then in order for Moshe Rabbeinu to succeed in his mission, what does he need to do? He needs to be the ultimate in HaKar Why is that? We're going to answer that question soon. But there's a third dimension. Up until now, we've spoken about HaKar to inanimate objects that have no intentions. We've spoken about HaKar to people that have not our best interest in mind. It's self-serving. And yet still we see that Moshe Rabbeinu had HaKar Now we'll talk about a third dimension. Can we have HaKar HaSatov to people that not only did they not have our interest in mind, but they had the opposite. They had a negative interest. And yet what they did served us anyway. And once again we come... To Moshe Abeinu. Moshe Abeinu comes and he sees that the daughters of Yisro are being attacked by these shepherds. And he saves them. The daughters go to Yisro and what do they say? Strange language. Ish Mitzri Hitzilanu. We were saved by an Egyptian man. The Medrash takes note of the fact It's Medrash and Shmos Rabbah, 132. You can look it up. The Medrash takes note of the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu is called an Egyptian. One would not necessarily identify the ultimate prophet in Kalal Yisrael as as an Egyptian. Strange language. So the Medrash says an unbelievable thing. What can this be compared to? It can be compared to a person who was bitten by a lizard. And the person runs down to the river to quickly wash out their wound. Make sure that the poison doesn't go in. And while they're at the river, they notice there's a child that's drowning. And because they're at the river, they jump into the river and they save the child. They pull the child to safety and the child turns to the person and says, Thank you for saving me. And the person turns to the child and says, don't thank me, thank the lizard that bit me. It's to the lizard that you should have HaKar Because if the lizard would not have bitten me, I would not have been in a position to save you. This, says the Medrash, is what Ish Mitzri Hitzilani means. Moshe Rabbeinu was having a conversation, this is the subtext, Moshe Rabbeinu was having a conversation with the daughters of Yisra. They had just finished being saved by Moshe Rabbeinu, and they turned to Moshe Rabbeinu and said, What? Thank you so much for saving us. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to them, Don't thank me. It was Ish-Mitzri. It was an Egyptian that saved you. Because had I not seen that Mitzri that was hurting that Jew... I would never have killed that mitzri. I would never have been forced to run away. And as a result, I never would have been in a position to save you. So you, the daughters of Yisro, should have a karsat tov to the mitzri that was hitting that Jew. Now, certainly, the mitzri that was hitting that Jew, and by the way, anybody know who that Jew was? Um, Who was the Jew? That bad person. That's correct. Aviram. Dasan and Aviram. In fact, the fight the next day that Moshe Rabbeinu saw was between Dasan and Aviram. If you want to learn more about that, I can uh, explain more at a different time. But not for now. But, so let's understand this. There's a mitzri. That mitzri is going to kill a Jew. By the way, the reason the mitzri was going to kill that Jew is because he wanted to take his wife. So there's a mitzri who wants to kill a man to take his wife. I think we can all agree these are not the noblest of intentions. And yet Moshe Rabbeinu says, You, the daughters of Yisro, must have a ha to that Ish-Mitzri. That is a wild medrash. Do you girls realize the implications of this medrash? It means that the daughters of Yisro should have a ha to somebody who is intending to do something terrible. Now, a disclaimer for all of this. It goes without saying, which means it has to be said, it goes without saying that when we talk about Akaras Atov, primarily what we mean is Akaras Atov to the Rabbanishal. That is, Daber Pshutim Adma Od. And if I'm not speaking about it, it's because there is a baseline expectation that one will have Akarasatov to their Abonashalom. The question is, can we have Akarasatov to their Abonashalom's Shluchim? That's the question. So before we answer that question, before we go back there, I just want to explain why is it that Akarasatov is such a central Midah, perhaps the central Midah, to being Mekabal Omach Hashemayim, that medrash that we said in the very beginning? Why do we see that it's so central that Chazal obligate us to have a hakaras satov to an inanimate object, to a person whose motivation may have been self-serving, and even to someone whose motivation was negative? It goes back to other marishon. Other marishon sinned. Hakadosh Baruch Hu comes and He says, "What did you do?" And what does other marishon say? God, it's this woman you gave me. It's this woman you gave me. What does Rashi say? Adam Arishon was a kafwi tov. Adam Arishon did not express his akarasatov to HaKadosh Baruch for creating a wife for him. At the very first chance he got, he said, the thing you made for me was bad. To rectify the sin of Adam Arishon, what must a person have? He must have Hakara Satov. He must have gratitude. Where does gratitude come from? Gratitude comes from a posture of humility. There's a posture, there's two postures. There's a posture of humility and there's a posture of arrogance. A posture of arrogance does not allow us to appreciate what somebody else has done for us. Because a posture of arrogance is guarded by its very definition. You see, arrogance means that I need to have a self-inflated ego. It means I really don't think very much of myself. So for me to recognize another as an arrogant person is very difficult. And you see that the, the esot of arrogance is, yadi. I did it. It's me. It's a fear. If I recognize you, I empower you. I need to hold all of the power. That's why Paro in his essence was a Kafoy Tov. Paro, in his essence, was terrified. it It was built in a worldview of fear. We must deal intelligently with these Jews. Why? Because they could overtake us. Somebody who has a posture of arrogance, like a Paro, who sees himself as a god, by definition he lives with fear. Somebody who lives with fear cannot express gratitude. And that's why the number one midah you should be looking for in a husband is a humble person. Because an arrogant man will not be able to recognize the insane amount of work that it takes to be a Jewish mother. And we all need, we all need recognition. And so there's a posture of arrogance that exists that I can't see what you did. Because if I do, it's like, you could imagine such a person. He's like, I would say thank you, but then if I say thank you, she's going to have something on me. You know what I mean? I don't want to... I don't want to recognize that she's done something, because then if she, she'll have something on me, there's a fear that exists. Humble does not mean Do You know what I mean by that? Yeah. It's not humble per se to be this person. You know what I mean? It's, that's not humble. A, a loud person could also be humble, or at least I hope that's true. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to be giving this shir and to be hearing the music in the background at the same time? <laughs> humble does not mean lacking confidence. In fact, I would say that a person that lacks confidence is not humble. Humility is a posture of recognizing that everything comes from the Abishter, Everything comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Which means that if I'm truly humble, what do I have? If I'm truly humble, I know that I have everything that I need and there is no fear. There is no fear. So I'm able to recognize that you've done something for me. Which means, at its core, what is Hakara Satov? It's a connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In other words, what's the litmus test? We all want to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We can either be humble like Moshe Abeinu, we could be arrogant like Paro. What's the litmus test to see if you're truly humble or if you're in a posture of arrogance? Are you a person who recognizes and expresses gratitude when you have the opportunity? And look how far Chazal took that concept: Hakaras Atov to an inanimate object, Rav Gusman watering the plants; Hakaras Atov to somebody who did not necessarily have your interest at heart, self-serving, and even Hakaras Atov to somebody to somebody whose motivation was terrible, but lemaisa it ended up in something good. Of course, like the Chovah Salavavo says, of course, that person was only a shliach. The Mitzri was deserving of HaKar of a Satov only because a Baruch who made him the shliach. Nevertheless, we have to have HaKar Satov. Which is why, going back to our original Medrash, you cannot be mekabal, O'ma if you don't have HaKar Satov. it's not possible it's not possible the stories of G'day Taira and the HaKar that they had and the extreme length that they went to to express their HaKar HaSatov literally hundreds of stories thousands of stories what does it mean for us today? Can we be sophisticated enough to have karasatov? to Medina Yisrael? I would like to suggest that again, it goes without saying, but we should say it because we must say these things. Of course, we should have Hakadosh. Uh, we should have first and foremost to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Anybody who does not recognize the value of what we have is simply not opening their eyes. And if I had to critique... Maybe critique is too strong No, Maybe not. If I had to critique some of today's youth, I would say that perhaps some of us have taken this for granted. We grew up where coming to Eretz Yisrael is not a big deal. The Kotel is like Cinderella's castle at Disney World. Kever Rachel is like the teacups. We come. We come for summers. We go on programs, mechlalet. We came for our bar and bat mitzvahs. We come for family vacations. We come to visit relatives. It's not a big deal. A couple thousand bucks. You're on a flight. You're here. It's no big deal. It's not like we have to take a boat. My grandparents took a boat to Israel on the high seas, like with seasickness. Like that's a real thing. Can you imagine having to come to your year in Israel on a boat? Quarantine is a joke. What was that? Yeah. That's a classic seminary question. Maybe I'd come on a boat, but if I could bring four suitcases, you know, Guys have the same issues, but then they bring meat. You know, it's like a different thing. I'm sure the barbecue is delicious, but it's not Abel's and Hyman hot dogs. You know what I mean? It's, uh... when, I come back, when, I, when I go to America for yeshiva, so I try to hop certain cities, and I try to stay away from other cities. My intentions are far from noble. I like to go to Chicago, because there's a deli in Chicago called Romanian. Yeah. So I like to... I like... You're, you're, you're. Okay, so I come back with a suitcase full of Romanian. My kitchen looks like a deli, you know, with like salamis <laughs> hanging down. My... I like to go to L.A. to get Jeff's and Pat's, right? I don't like to go to Memphis. I don't know why, you know? <laughs> Actually, there's, a, there's an Indian This is a... I, <laughs> You're not going to sell me on Memphis. I like the Jews in Memphis, It's not the food, you know. Dallas, they have good barbecue. Okay, man, this is, this is going to take us to a bad place. Yeah, I like New York too. Now I'm distracted. Um, so are we really Makotov? Or have we come to think of Israel as a vacation destination? What would our great-grandparents have said about such an attitude? What would our great-grandparents in Poland in 1933 have said if we could say to them that in 2021 we were going to be sitting in a backyard in Beit Shemesh in Israel, safe, Learning Torah. Yeah, but like, I don't know. It's like so much more comfortable in America. What would they have said? I know that's a little bit of a harsh musr, but it's something to hear once in your life. Do we really have a karasa tov? are we just taking it for granted? Maybe push the envelope a little bit further. Do we have a karasa tov for the shluchim that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent? And yes... There are problems. It's far from a perfect system here. But I think that if we abstract it, if we think about it in an abstract way, we can appreciate that Medina Yisrael also built us roads. That Medina Yisrael has some systems, some that have worked less well for us, but some that have worked very well for us. And there are publicly funded schools here. My daughters go to public school. Beis Yaakov Public School. I pay 70 shekel a month tuition. Which means that for my daughters' educations, for all five of them, gone all the way through 12th grade, I will pay less for all of them. Than one year of high school for you. Wow. And I wish I could tell you that I moved to Eretz Israel only for Kadusha HaSaretz, but that's a pretty good deal. So there has been a tremendous amount of good that has come from this institution. Bar Hashem, today we have tens of thousands of Jews learning Torah in Eretz Yisrael under the safety of Medina Yisrael. So are there problems? For sure. Should we pay attention to those problems? Absolutely. And we should vote with our feet. If we live here, if we come en masse and we vote, we participate in the system, we can and we are changing this system. And Baruch Hashem. Sometimes the shluchim <coughs> from the Rabbonu Shalom are less than pure. It's this week's Haftorah. This week's Haftorah. The, the four mitzorim, the four lepers that brought about the Yeshua. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go look in this week's uh, Haftorah. There's no doubt that sometimes HaKadosh Baruch who sends shluchim that aren't necessarily pure of heart. But we can and should appreciate On an abstract level, we can appreciate Ish Mitzri hitzilanu*. So when we speak about Yom Ha'atzmot, I think we can get lost in saying, This day. Tazovet the day. Forget the day. Sfira, not Sfira, that's not the issue. That's a technical issue. If you don't want to value the state of Israel... Today, because it's sphere if you don't want to play music or any of that, but say there, I understand you can have your halachic position. Hala with a bracha, without a bracha, these these are not the issues to me. These are technical issues that draw us away from the hashkafa that we can have. The hashkafa that we can have is we can have hakaras you want to express it now, or if you want to express it after Lagba Omer. That's not... That's a technical issue. The reality is... And by the way, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was not a fan of Yoma Atzmut. You know why? He said we should be celebrating Yoma Atzmut on Shavuos. Because we have to send a message to the world. The world says, You are stealing Israel. We should celebrate Yom HaTzmod on Shavuot, said the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Because then we could say, in the Torah it says that the land is ours. A good chap. But the point is not to get caught up in the minutia. Should it be today? Should it be a different day? Should I say hallow with a bracha, without a bracha? Leave me alone. If you're fighting about... Well, you didn't say halal with the brach, or, or you said halal, but you did, but, but, but you, you only said it after davening, or in davening, or you didn't say halal, or you said tachnon, or you didn't say tachnon. Leave me alone. You and I are not having the same conversation. You're talking about technicalities. I'm talking about something much more important. What is our position when it comes to this unbelievable gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us? I'll leave you with this thought and then we'll open it up to the question and answer. Every day in Davening we say, b'shuv The simple understanding is return us to a state of redemption that we should be zochet to see redemption. But I heard a beautiful pshat. I forget who said it. zena einenu, return our eyes so that we should be able to see that ge'ula is happening all around us. I don't know if Medina Israel is reshit smichat Atenu or not. To me, again, to get involved in those types of issues takes away from the hakaras that we can have. I don't like to get caught up in minusha. But one thing for sure, girls, when I look out my window and I see that Eretz Yisrael is being built, Baruch Hashem, firecrackers. It wouldn't be a good it wouldn't be a good without music in the background and firecrackers in the distance. Girls, you're not gonna see it. It's Israeli firecrackers. They don't actually go off. They just make loud noises. When I look out my window and I see them building all of Ramape Chemesh Gimel, something is happening. And if you don't see that, then you need to have your eyes examined.